Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Catherine, you're bringing a really, really big case to the table today. Let's get started. What can you tell us? It is a big case. People know the word, right? Because I think everybody knows the word Columbine, and they use it as verb uh, or an adjective. Most people really don't know any of the facts. They just think they know the facts. You think you know something because you've continued to read it and hear it over and over again, but the information that's being shared is wrong. So I bring to you the information based on having spent several days in the halls and on the grounds of Columbine High School, speaking with the people who were there when the shooting occurred, people who recovered from it. And I came away with a story that was so different than, and so few seemed to know, and I thought it was important. So in truth, we're going to really learn about two different stories about this infamous day. One is false, and one that's really the true crime story. Of course, I've heard of Columbine. Everybody as far as New Zealand and the UK have heard about Columbine, but you've really got me intrigued now. So let's get right to it. Sure. So the first story that everybody knows is that on April 20th, at about 11.19 in the morning, two high school students arrived with two rifles and two shotguns, and they began shooting up Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, up in the beautiful mountains of the West uh, Coast. One teacher, 12 students were killed, and the shooters committed suicide in the school library. That's the story everybody knows. Here's the second story. On April 20th at 11.14 a.m., two high school students placed two heavy homemade bomb-filled duffel bags amongst the bunch of backpacks in their school cafeteria at Columbine High School. They went outside to position their bomb-filled cars in two different school parking lots. They changed their clothes, and then they decided to reapproach the schools because they had set the duffel bag bombs to go off a few minutes later than when they set them down and the duffel bags didn't blow up. So they decide to reapproach the school, and they shoot two people who are outside. That's important because those two people result in the first 911 call. And then they begin shooting others inside and outside the school. They exchange gunfire several times with the police before they choose to commit suicide in the school library. And in the end, the one accurate piece from the other story is one teacher and 12 students are killed. Wow. When I hear the word Columbine, I think about a school shooting straight away. That's what I think of, not bombs. It sounds like that wasn't the plan initially, though. Yes, but I'll say that's where the story begins, right? Because it's also really a far different story than um, the ones that most people think they know. And today, later in the show, I'd like to talk a little bit about people who think they know the shooter and want to emulate the shooter, or what we would call the contagion factor, and people who idolize shooters I think they're mimicking somebody who they don't know. 
at all. But we do have a lot of information uh, about the shootings. And so that's part of what I want to talk about is what is the cost of telling that first story? How does it affect future potential shootings? And how does it affect our psyche about school shootings? And it sounds like there's a few twists in the tale that we don't know as listeners. So it's been over 20 years since this shooting. And I know the details might have faded in people's minds, but the name Columbine certainly hasn't. So can you set the scene? Definitely. So we have two killers. They're high school seniors, 17, 18 years old. So the morning of April 20th, as I mentioned, they came to school in separate cars. They parked two different parking lots behind the school. And the school has two floors. So just imagine, if you can, there's a bit of a hill. So the cafeteria in the back, you can walk up some stairways and actually walk into the cafeteria. But it's a walkout cafeteria. And above the cafeteria is the school library, which is actually on the main floor. So if you come in the school front door, you could walk down to the back of the school where there's a library and take a roll of stairs down to the cafeteria. And that's really where we see all this unfortunate event occur. So keep that image in your mind as I try to pull out some salient facts for our listeners. And the actual school is quite sprawling and big. Yeah, it's pretty large. The The student population is 1,700, but the school district itself is very big. There was a proposal to tear it down and rebuild it. It would have cost $70 million in taxpayer wow. dollars. Okay. So um, it remains there today. So it definitely is a big school with lots of sprawling corners. So these two had these grandiose plans that they were going to cause this huge commotion. And their plan failed miserably when people idolized these shooters. Their plan to detonate cars and to blow up the cafeteria and see if they could kill people in the cafeteria or the people in the library up above it. No bombs, I say that with air quotes, detonated and killed people. So their plan was an utter failure. So when other people try to emulate them, which is one of the biggest problems that we've had with post-Columbine is people who think that they want to be like these shooters. My answer to that would be you want to be failures. So don't be right. like these shooters. So anyway, let me tell you what happened. If you've got, if you've got a minute, grab a cup of tea. I do. Okay. At 11, 14, as I mentioned. They placed two duffel bags. They're about 20 pounds a piece, I think, with backpacks in this crowded cafeteria. It was before the first lunch period. So the cafeteria was jammed. We know that they hoped the explosion was going to immediately, indiscriminately kill probably a hundred or more kids. So remember that concept of indiscriminately. When nothing exploded, they moved from their cars towards the school. They were shooting a couple of people sitting outside. That was where the first 911 call came in that, hey, there's some people outside hurt. Someone's shooting a gun here. Someone got shot, I think. Okay. Can you see anything going on over there? No, someone, some girl's on the ground. I think she's hurt. The police officers, they thought maybe somebody had been hit by a car, for instance. So officer arrives, and as he arrives, he hears on the radio that there's a shooter inside the school. Chestnut County is getting shots fired at officers. Two males in trench coats have shotguns and possible grenades. He climbs from his car. One of the shooters fires 14 shots towards him. He returns six rounds. None of those 20 rounds hit anybody. The shooter enters the school and it shoots down the hallway, hits three students at the stairway just coming outside of the school. One shooter ducks into the cafeteria briefly. He runs into the building. He ducks down in the cafeteria where they left those backpack bombs. He doesn't shoot towards anybody, even though there's people there. And he joins his buddy on the stairway, headed towards the library up on the main floor. 
the whole time they've been lugging these bags with homemade pipe bombs and ammunition, four guns between them, four knives, and initially wearing these long black coats to try to cover all this gear that they're carrying. But eventually, as the shooting begins, they shed the coats. So that's our scene. That's where we start. Guys run in, jump in the cafeteria, run out. Can I just ask a couple of questions there? Sure, sure. Yeah. So they duck into the cafeteria but didn't shoot anyone. Why not? I think that the speculation is that maybe they were looking for their duffel bags. At this point, as soon as these two kids entered the school, they recognized that all their planning was a failure. And so the duffel bags haven't blown up and, and their whole plan is not going to be executed. Nothing they were thinking of doing is successful. But even though there were tons of kids in the cafeteria, he didn't fire any rounds. He just left. So the fact that the killers did go into the cafeteria, didn't open fire immediately, it feels very different from, say, the Sandy Hook episode where the killer's gone in there and just indiscriminately started shooting. It's all over in two or three minutes, but this does feel very different, doesn't it? It does, and it was a very different situation. And this is where the Columbine folklore kind of fills its own false narrative And it's been hard to beat down that false narrative because there was no kind of straight up school shooting like we think of that we saw in Sandy Hook where somebody came into school, shot a bunch of little kids and then killed himself. And that's what we don't want to have people believe about Columbine. That may sound silly to say, oh, here's what I want people to believe. But I think it's really important to know the facts of these situations, especially in true crime. And we want to tell accurate stories. This is a true crime podcast. True (laughs) accent on the true, as they say. There's no way to copycat this. This is not a successful run into the school and shoot up a bunch of kids. These are, this is just a two confused guys who, in fact, at this point are wandering around the school. Just the words copycat and wannabes are so disturbing, aren't they? Anyway, and I know we're going to revisit that later. So we've got the shooters inside. They've looked in the cafeteria and then seen that their bombs haven't gone off, moved up to the library. What happens next? Oh, here we have another unsuccessful exchange with law enforcement. So some law enforcement outside the cafeteria is below the library and it's on a hill. So they're they're shooting down at some law enforcement that is out in the parking lots. And most of the 52 rounds that have been fired at this time have been fired by one of the shooters who's more aggressive, more of the rounds come out of his gun as the day goes on. They toss some homemade pipe bombs into some hallways. They don't go off. Some of them release a little bit of smoke, but not much. The principal comes out of his office. Frank comes out of his office and because he hears the shooting and he gets shot at from the far distance, from the back of the school towards the front of the school where Frank is and other people are. And then they uh, look for other targets. A teacher, Dave Sanders, uh, steps into the hallway. He's looking to help people and try to shuffle people away. They shoot at Dave Sanders. He gets hit. He gets dragged back into a science classroom. Oh my God. Um, so basically right now they're just in the hallway kind of wandering around and the law enforcement is still outside. So even though they've tossed some homemade bombs that aren't going off and they fired some shots, they're not doing any great destructive action. At this point, they're looking maybe for targets, right? So given the fact that there are so many teachers and this is such a big school, maybe 1700 students, lots of students are hiding. Lots of students are running. There's a lot of run hide going on, not the fight part, but a lot of run hide going on. And at this point, they head towards the library. We've actually got a um, 911 call that uh, comes in around this time. Is this about the time that's happening or is there more exchanges with the police in between there? No, you're right. There's been a couple of exchanges with police at this point and there are police officers outside, right? So police are arriving at the scene. There is a huge police and first responder response outside. 
But inside, because the police have already had exchanges with the shooters, there's some debate about how to respond. From the outside, we don't know this, but what's happening inside is that in the library, people have gone upstairs, the teachers have gone in, and students are hiding in places. And think about where you can hide in a library. The shooters go up and they're in the hallway outside the library. And I don't want to re-traumatize anybody who's listening. And so just give you a warning that we have a tape we're going to play. And it's a tape of a caller who is calling into 911 and she's describing what she's hearing outside. And if you listen to key critical things, when we talk about true crime, this is the reality. And the first thing I want you to listen for is while she's talking, you can hear shooting in the background. And every one of those shots, right? Where is that shot going? We don't know. And the 911 operators don't know. The other thing that you can hear is as her conversation goes on, you'll hear her say they're out in the hallway. At a certain point, the shooters come into the library where she is located and you hear her drop her voice down to just a whisper. And not too long after that, we'll cut the call off. But you can hear her drop her voice down to a whisper because she knows that the shooters are in the same room where she is. Jefferson County 911. Yes, I'm a teacher Columbine High School. There is a student here with a gun. He has shot out a window. I believe one of them. Um, 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 I've been Columbine High School. I don't know what's in my shoulder. If it was just the last thing you threw it. Um, okay, has anybody been injured, ma'am? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the school is in a panic. And I'm in the library. I've got students down. I'm on the table, kids. Um, kids are screaming, some of the teachers um, are, you know, trying to take the holding. We need police here. We need okay, police. we're getting them there. Who is the student, ma'am? I do not know who the student is. Okay. I saw a student outside. I was in hold. I had a gun. Okay. I was on hold. I saw a gun. I said, what's going on out there? And he said, that was probably something different. It's probably a joke. I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And I went walking outside. I can see the damn see what was going on. He turned the gun straight at us and shot. And my God, the window went out. And the kid standing there with me, I think he got hit. Okay. Something in my shoulder. Okay. We've got help on the way, ma'am. Okay. Okay. Oh, God. Stay in the line with me. Oh, God. Hey, kids, just stay down. Do we know where he's at? I'm sorry? Do we know where he's at? He, okay. I'm in the library. He's upstairs. He's right outside of here. He's outside? He's outside of this hall. Outside of a hall? Outside of a hall. Okay. okay. There are alarms. We think going off. There's smoke. My God, smoke is like coming into this room. Okay. okay. I've got the kids under the table here. I don't know what's happening in the rest okay. of the building. Most of like smoke in the building. I don't know. I'm sure someone has to be calling 911. Yes. We've got a lot of people on. Okay. I just want you to stay in the line with me. We need to know what's going on. Okay. Okay. I am on the floor. Okay. And you've okay. got the kids in the there. Library. And I've got every student in this library on the floor. You better stay on the floor. Is there any way you can lock the doors? Um, smoke is coming in from out there, and I'm a little okay. The gun is right outside the library door. Okay. I don't think I'm going to go out there. Okay. okay. You're at home in my high school. I got three children. Okay. We got it. Okay. Um, I'm not going to go to the door to shut the door. Okay. I've got the kids on the floor. Um, I got all the kids in the library on the We have paramedics, we have fire, and we have police on route, okay, sir? Okay. Okay. Yes. This, I mean, he's, I, I don't know. This, I can't know. believe he's not out of bullets. He just keeps shooting and shooting and shooting. Okay. Yeah, we've got a police officer on scene. I thought it was. Okay, just try and keep the kids in the library calm. Yeah. Is there any way you can block the door so no one can get in? I do, I do not. Okay. 
very intense so she's in the library patty the teacher and incredibly brave to be on the phone that whole time and you can hear her voice drop the two killers have entered the library at the end of that phone call is that right that is and if you caught it it, all the noise that you hear that's the noise coming from the dispatch center right you hear another dispatcher say to somebody we're gonna stay on the phone with you stay under the table yeah tell me what happens next So I know it's hard to even talk about. So for the next seven minutes, the two shooters remain in the library. They're shooting people that they can find under tables. And there's some resistance, but obviously not uh, too much. They reload as they need. They kill 10 people as they walk around during those uh, seven minutes. And another 12 are wounded. When they finally leave the library, 39 people, including 10 who were injured, flee out of emergency exit. Dozens and dozens of police are outside at this point working on the strategies for how to get inside. The killers leave the library. They return briefly to the cafeteria 
They're still clearly frustrated that their homemade bombs haven't exploded. One of the shooters fires at one of the duffel bags trying to make it go off, then lights and tosses a Molotov cocktail in the air trying to get the, the duffel bag to explode. It does not, but it starts a little small fire and the school sprinkler system uh, puts it out right away. And at this point, because of the smoke, we have the fire suppression system audio ringing all over. You could hear some of that in the background of the call that we just took. They spend a few more minutes in the hallway. They fire their guns off randomly before they return to the library. And as they have done before, they shoot a few rounds from the windows that the police below, the police fire back. Uh, The speculation might be that they uh, were trying to have the law enforcement kill them. And if they fired out the window, maybe they would get hit. But they didn't make a very aggressive move at it because just minutes later, they kill themselves. And it's just a few minutes after noon, about 50 minutes after all of this has started. I just want to drop a thousand F-bombs. Unbelievable. It's interesting that they left the library. Presumably, they had ammunition with them when they left the library to go back down to the cafeteria. And there were still people, you know, alive in the library. Why do you think they did that? Was it just to see if they could trigger the bombs, do you think? I think they had this grand plan in their own minds, and they didn't really execute any of it. I think what we saw was the wandering of, geez, I don't know what the plan is. They wandered in that last half of it after they killed the people in the library. They couldn't move past the agenda that they had in their head that didn't seem to match them. So they just completely, they went off the rails and off script. So we've got the two killers there now in an empty library and they've shot themselves. Presumably no one's around to witness that. So how did the police discover it's all over and it's safe? That's precisely why it's important to talk about a case like this, because the shooting this, this shooting happened more than 22 years ago. And back then, police did surround the school, call in SWAT. There was some level of contain and wait, which is a ref- term that we've used before, just to talk about how you come to the scene, you contain the scene and make sure that the, the, the danger remains within the scene. And then you bring in the professionals like a SWAT team or a sharpshooter. And in this case, there had been four exchanges of gunfire. So the law enforcement who was there knew that the shooters had been shooting. And you're right, they were in the library, uh, killed themselves. How would they know that? So as the shooters go yeah. silent, the SWAT team really didn't enter for another hour. And then the fire alarm was still going off and the officers didn't know the floor plan of the school So they begin a slow clear of rooms. They go one room at a time, one doorway at a time, one cupboard. If anything has a handle on it, you open it up to see if somebody's in there. And they're looking for students. And as they find them, they're moving them and faculty to safety and out of the building. One of the other sad and more unique things about this shooting is that because it took that amount of time, there was actually television cameras poised watching some of this come together. And part of that includes an image of a young man who was in the library and actually was shot and left unconscious in the library, left for dead. And after the shooters killed themselves and the people fled the library, he was left behind as it turned out, not because people didn't try to help him, but he lost consciousness. And when he regained consciousness, he had the use of one of two legs. He crawled to the window, crawled up on the ledge, and there's video coverage that you can see of him climbing into the ledge of this window, which is in the library, which is on the second floor in the back of the school, and falling out of a window as first responders try to catch him and take him to safety. But he was very determined. He did interviews after that talking about how he was determined to get out of there. 
And so that's there. As I said, he survived. But the teacher who I mentioned, Dave Sanders, who was shot, he was taken to a science room where for three hours, people worked with him trying to stop him bleeding. Somebody put a sign up in the window that said one bleeding to death, trying to get first responders to come. But police had not gone directly to that classroom thinking that maybe it was a trap by the shooters. And at the time, they were slowly clearing the room after the shooting stopped. And by the time they got a paramedic to Mr. Sanders, more than three hours later, he had died of his injuries. The police, because they were clearing, didn't make it to the library until three in the afternoon. And that's when they did find some of the survivors, uh, wounded person in the bodies of all the victims uh, that had been killed. So sad. And, and how traumatic for those people that were with Dave Sanders as well. When did they discover that there was bombs involved then? I think early on, in, in this case, we had the, the duffel bags are one thing, but you don't know what's inside a duffel bag and students left backpacks all over the place. But it was clear that there were bombs as part of the equation because they had built these homemade pipe bombs that were seen in the hallway. And so anytime there's explosives involved, you always have to worry about, okay, where else is there? Because, you know, nobody builds one. We had the students had two cars. So very quickly, the cars were identified. The students were identified earlier on than you might think. People who fled the school, in some cases, saw the shooters and knew who they were. So the names were identified. That allowed them to pick up identifying information, including like vehicles and things like that. So they knew they were dealing with potential explosives. And that just caused more of the challenging decision-making to know that there might be bombs in the scene too. And of course, like you say, it The incident took 50 minutes, but it's like four hours from when the shooting started. And actually, there's three hours after the killers are dead that people are in that school and nobody's got eyes in that. Is that something that schools have tried to find a solution to since Columbine, like surveillance cameras in the school areas? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Sarah, because if you work in a business, if you go to a bank or if you go to a grocer or market and they have cameras a lot of times surveillance cameras are used to gather information after a crime occurs so we can convict somebody. But really, the value of good surveillance equipment, just like the value of good PA systems in a building, and that's great when you can have an announcement after the fact, all clear, but isn't it better to have a sound system that tells you run, hide, fight? Isn't it better to have a text messaging system that tells you run, hide, fight? And isn't Mm -hmm. it better to have a surveillance system with cameras where you can see what's going on at the time? And in this case, a lot of the surveillance uh, cameras that are placed in buildings, they are not necessarily monitored live. I know this from my work in this field. And because they're not monitored live, and even if they were monitored live in the front office of a school, and then there's something that happens in a school then people flee and you don't have a chance to see those cameras. Yeah, that makes sense. And we saw that in the Navy Yard uh, episode that we did that the surveillance people, it was protocol to get out and run once the alarms went off. So, Because in Navy Yard, a fire alarm went off in that big building in Washington, D.C. They left and left the surveillance cameras, which would have allowed us to find maybe potentially a, a lot sooner people who were injured who might be able to be saved, but also the person who was causing the threat. And in this case... There were surveillance cameras, not throughout the whole building and as tensely as you might think of in some buildings, but there were cameras in uh, different hallways uh, in the cafeteria. And again, oftentimes those cameras are not for prevention. Therefore, how are we going to, you know, pull the evidence afterwards? And that's why it's valuable to use safety equipment you have in your buildings 
for prevention too. So we did have cameras, but we didn't have access to those cameras. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There was a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but, you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. (laughs) Avoid elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. So in this incident, what is the most significant piece of information that you think needs to be shared with the public? I think that it's really important. The public should really know Columbine has become a rally cry for people who are troubled and excused to commit violence. The internet is rife with materials about these shooters and plenty of subsequent shooters. Every week, I can tell you two cases this week that were referred to me where the shooters said they were going to do a Columbine-style shooting to this week. Every week, they invoke that name of Columbine, the Sandy Hook shooter, the Virginia Tech shooter, so many others, and they use that as their excuse for why they want to be able to commit violence. So I don't say something like this often, but I'm going to say this here. Anytime you hear a student or a young adult talking about Columbine, researching it, or writing about it in a diary, you should check your hesitation at the door. You should immediately share that information with somebody, whether it's right. a tip line, whether it's parents, whether it's faculty, counselors, police, really all of them. Even if it's a school project, share the information. There's some video out there that shows these individuals and, and potential shooters say, oh, that's cool video. That video footage of these shooters yelling at the cameras was a school project. It wasn't real. It was a school project. But it did project some of what they actually conveyed. They began to convince themselves they could do this. Virginia Tech shooter wrote about the violence of doing a a shooting at a university and then executed that plan. So anytime you hear somebody talking about Columbine, don't hesitate to reach out. I just can't stress that enough. Say something. In this case, big time. See something, say something. 
It's a good message to loads of teachers as well, because in both those incidents, it's the teachers that have seen the, the project or the writing. When we talked about the San Isidro McDonald's shooting that happened in 1984 in a previous episode, we talked about how officers come to the scene but followed their protocol to contain and wait, meaning that they surround the area and waited for SWAT to come and respond. I thought that there was some effort to change that. It doesn't feel like that happened here. So why did it take so long for the police? You're right. Certainly we know in retrospect that police learned that waiting for SWAT is not the answer. But in the shooting at Columbine, it included four exchanges with law enforcement. And and as you mentioned, it was a big sprawling building. And the police had uh, these exchanges with these subjects. And so there were just a number of challenges. Now, the SWAT teams didn't have a good map of the schools. They didn't know where to go to find anybody once they even got in there. They didn't have radio communication between the SWAT teams from the different departments. So you can't send ex-sheriff's deputies from the front hallway and why sheriff's deputies from the back hallway and hope that they're not going to create what we call a blue on blue, meaning law enforcement shooting law enforcement because they come around the corner and there's somebody there with a gun. So between that, the fire alarm going off, there was just a lot of confusion as occurs in these kinds of situations. And Columbine really was a terrible tragedy, right? Police protocols have changed a lot since then because probably most importantly, We know that the police here went room to room to clear each little room and each little cupboard. Now, even when uh, we think the shooting is stopped and the law enforcement are moving aggressively through a building, they move more dynamically through a building to try to find where was the threat, even if the threat is over, where was the threat? Because once they find where they believe the threat is, in this case, it would have been in the library, then police, they just need to make sure it's neutralized so that more people can come in to help clear the building. But so you're saying they move dynamically. Does that not increase the risk for the actual law enforcement? Oh, huge. Yes, huge. In the research, when I was in the FBI, uh, we did research on 160 active shooter incidents that occurred over a 14-year period. And it's a research that is is fantastically called that study of 160 active shooter incidents between 2000 and 2013. So not a very exciting name, but I wanted people to be able to find it. And in, in that research, we found that in the instances where law enforcement had to engage the shooters, 47% of the time, law enforcement was killed or injured. So terrible odds, absolutely terrible odds. Exactly. So almost a one in two chance that you're going to get hit. What that means is law enforcement has to be prepared. You can't have your ballistic vest in the trunk. You got to have it on. You've got to have your ballistic helmet with you. You have to have your long gun availability. So when you roll your car up to the scene, you have to be ready because the shooter's going to be already seeing you coming and he's going to be firing. That's what we, that's what we learned from Columbine. And what about the actual school itself? Was there anything about that school environment that, I don't know, fostered these two killers in any way? Yeah, I think that's hard to say because everybody's individual. Everybody's different. And in this case, this was a very typical high school and and there were a lot of stories about what the school was like. We can talk more about the killers later, but there were stories about bullying or stories about gangs or stories about cliques. But truthfully, this was a very typical uh, suburban high school. There wasn't anything in particular. There weren't any policies in place that were outrageous. Certainly, this is around the time when the United States started to have these zero tolerance policies for anything that had to do with disruptive or violent actions or threats of violence. And I can tell you, one of these shooters uh, for example, was suspended for three days for scratching something into a, another person's locker that presumably was 
threatening in some nature. And we know that because he made a note in his diary about how wrong he thought that was, that he should be expelled from school or suspended for a few days with this zero tolerance policy. So would he have been expelled from school for for that now? Explain the zero tolerance policy to me. Oh, zero tolerance policy. It's a phrase that's used here, but it's adopted in schools and policies to say, if there's an action, discipline will follow. So for example, we've had zero tolerance policy cases where we have five-year-old boys on the playground point their imaginary finger gun at another five-year-old boy. And then the boy gets suspended from school for two days because he was doing something that looked like a gun. Okay, that seems extreme. I wanted to give you the most extreme case. <laughs> That's so you very extreme. Then. <laughs> Here, you can imagine on the other end, the, you yeah. have a parent who you have to stay home for three days from work because because your, your kid finger pointed at another kid. So the zero tolerance, there's much more in between, right? Pushing and shoving and threats of violence. There's a lot of other things. But the concept was, we don't tolerate violence. We don't tolerate threats in our school. And the challenge to that is that I think what we've learned since then is that when we have such an absolute rule, all we're doing is passing our problem on to somebody else. And actually, one of the kids who wrote about it in his diary, he's angry. He just thought it was stupid that he was suspended for three days for something that was so minor in his mind. It might not have been minor, and I don't need to make light of what he did. It's just that the challenge in school is that you're dealing with immature people who are making decisions, and they're frustrated about things, and then you take a zero tolerance policy. And what you do is you cast that person out. And then we have no view over them. We have no visuals on them. We have nobody seeing how they're doing and and helping them to adjust and come back to the group as a whole. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because your example was more a zero common sense policy than tolerance. So I guess my question is, you've got to be really careful because we've seen previously that these grievance collectors, they might take that zero tolerance policy and react to it in such a strong way that it might actually become a trigger event. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. I think that's something that everybody should be aware of. We talk a lot about how we want to make sure that you look for behaviors of concern. A person who commits violence moves on a pathway. They go from, we've got this idea to planning and preparation, and then they commit these violent acts. And that planning and preparation are behaviors like buying guns or stopping taking their medication or shaving their head or changing their clothing or giving their their own things away because they think they also might want to commit suicide. Those behaviors of concern are types of things to look for. But often there is a triggering event. And if there are situations where we cast somebody aside, that may be for them the excuse, essentially, that they need. And that's that triggering event. Right. So you need some kind of safety net around the zero tolerance policy an aftercare plan. And some schools have modified these types of plans to say, we want you to feel the weight of responsibility for what you did. And you're going to have some sort of suspension, but you're going to serve it in school. In some cases, the school systems have developed methods to give the students an opportunity to talk and uh, to send them to anger management class, for instance, things like that. And school counselors can come in and interact with them and maybe give them opportunity to not, you know, just be uh, cast away. Yeah. So when you look at Columbine, we've talked previously about lots of different solutions that were bandied around after Sandy Hook, for example. What do you think would have made an actual positive impact at saving lives that day in Columbine? I think one of the things that really was a good lesson, I don't know if anything good is even a word to apply in this case, but all the Denver, Colorado school systems did a great job of taking 
all of the terrible things that happened here and saying, how can we do better? And so in Colorado, they have the most aggressive training for students, and they train all the way down to the elementary school level. And they don't train them to scare them to pieces. They train them in the ways that teachers know how to talk to students. I'm a convert to the run, hide, fight training after our very first uh, episode. Everyone that I talk to about it, a lot of their reactions are, no way would I have my child do active drill training. But after that conversation with you, I'm 100%. It, It should be done. Well, and thank you for allowing me to convert you. I think that it, I think that though the training needs to be done right. Training, any training that scares people is not good training. You don't learn from being scared. You can convince your toddler to sit down when you find them standing at the top of the stairs and then give you a chance to catch up the stairs and, and get them as opposed to a toddler standing at the top of the stairs and you scream at them, you scare them and they fall down the stairs. So. I'm a firm believer in uh, you can train without scaring people. And in the state of Colorado, they've proven that over and over again. And what about the physicality of the building itself? Could the building have different security that would have helped on the day? Well, that's a good question. I do security consulting and people always want to throw money at it. And I think that money's not always the solution to security. Schools are a business and whether we want them to be or not, it still costs money. So let me just give you an example. People say, oh, maybe we should put up magnetometers so that kids can't get in with guns. We know statistically that anybody who's shooting in a high school, the chances are that they're a high school student at that school. So they already have access. And so right. that's really important uh, to remember. And, and Columbine, even today, is an open campus. But it does have a completely different posture than it had before. So budgeting for this calendar year, the security budget for the Jeffco schools, which is where Columbine is, one of 18 high schools is $8 million. Wow. That's a chunk of change, isn't it? Indeed. And that's for 137 full-time employees in security. They have 156 schools. They have 80,000 students and a lot of schools. So it's a big budget for a big operation. But they also have security that includes drills. They run two drills at every facility every year about how to get the children move safely wherever they need to go. In addition to that, they do a lot of community outreach with that money to make sure that the residents understand how to respond. And so the money has gone into perimeter security. You can't drive up to Columbine High School today without right. going by sheriff's deputies because mm-hmm. Columbine has really truthfully become a pilgrimage location. And some people come there just because they want to say that they were there. So now they have 24-7. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a good thing. But really, the money has given them great response time. They know how to be agile. And they also have spent a lot of money on preventative efforts, on gathering information and, and determining whether that's a real threat. And then what we would call off-ramping somebody who might be in distress. Right. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.
Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So I've got um, a big question for you. Did anyone actually report unusual behavior about those killers beforehand? So not to law enforcement about these individuals and what they were going to do. Let me tell you one thing. Both these shooters obtained their weapons that were used while they were underage. And there were certainly people who have to have seen things and maybe in retrospect, wish they had said something. But what people said uh, in some interviews with the media were maybe what they thought the media wanted to hear. So you will hear television clipped interviews if you go online where people are saying, this is what I thought about these kids. They were that way. But chances are they didn't know them at all. And probably the most prominent fact that you hear all the time is that these kids were members of the trench coat mafia. You hear that term yeah. all the time. It sounds mm-hmm. really cool. Trench coat mafia. The trench coat mafia was actually a group in the school that had nothing to do with violence. Their pictures in the yearbook. These two are not in the yearbook picture. They had nothing to do with the trench coat mafia. There was nothing negative about them. There was nothing violent about that group of kids. But others who were interviewed by the media just wanted to put them into that category because it, maybe it sounded cool. These kids had social lives, normal kids, and one of them had gone to the prom a few days before the shooting. God. Let's talk about the F word, firearms, (laughs) guns. We talk about every episode. So, yeah, again, we see the situation where, in this case, 17 and 18-year-old has access to multiple guns. How does that occur? And if you tell me that 17 and 18-year-olds can buy semi-automatic weapons in the U.S., I absolutely just might lose my mind. Tell me that's not the case. (laughs) It is not true, Sarah. Good. Finally. 17-year-olds cannot buy semi-automatic weapons here. And you're right. And there's no question that obviously the violence that occurred at this level occurred because there were weapons involved. We certainly have other situations where, where we have violence occur in schools and other places and there aren't guns involved and the violence results in less deaths and injuries. So that's true. So in this case, I just want to say they were underage at the time that they acquired the guns and the ammunition that they had been planning this for a year. What they did is they talked to a person who talked to another person who talked to Philip Duran, who talked to Mark Maines. And in fact, both those individuals who facilitated their purchasing of the guns went to jail 
for providing guns to minors. One sentence to four and a half years, one sentence to six years in jail. Finally, a gun law that makes sense to me. Don't sell guns to minors. One thing that I want to touch on briefly is that at the beginning of the story, you said that there were two different versions of the story. Where did that false version actually come from? Really, it came from media coverage, right? And unwitting accomplices, people who wanted to have their fame. And this is a little bit of what I was referring to before. If you type in the name of one of these shooters, you get almost 2 million hits on that shooter. Wow, that's obscene. Because this was a shocking crime at that time for a school event, so many people wanted to emote, right? The parents talked, the neighbors talked, the people in the town talked. Everybody wanted to share their grief, but also the media at the time that this occurred, we were all about network television and network television was all about making TV movies and making these made for TV movies where we docudrama something. And there were huge stories written in newspapers and magazines. Listeners have heard me complain about this before. The number of photographs of the shooters that were spread all over. It's a uh, difficult uh, challenge that the media has gone through for the last 25 years and will continue to go through. That's not just about the media. I have a bachelor's degree in journalism and I worked as a journalist for a number of years. I respect the media and the role that they need to play in an open society. Far and away, it's a very important role. But the media challenge at the time is that everybody wanted to tell the story And the easiest story to tell was the story of these two shooters developing a story that was a narrative that sounded good and sounded dramatic. And what's the impact of that on society? Today, there are private and public websites just about the killers so people can follow them. There are fan groups that follow these killers who really are kind of losers. Everything they planned on doing didn't happen except killing themselves. They successfully killed themselves. But people idolize them and they want to emulate them. And I told you that they have this huge security budget at at Columbine, at, at Jeffco schools. One of the reasons they have this huge security budget is because they have to worry about people who come there to commit suicide on the grounds, people who dress up, people who talk about it. Oh, I'm going to dress like him. I'm going to look like him. I'm going to take my picture in the same position that he took his picture in. Because we released all those pictures. So here's where it's a challenge. How much information does the media share? How often does the media play these pictures? This is a big issue. It's actually an issue I speak on publicly, is this contagion dichotomy between the media who's got to cover the story and they're covering the story because you want the story. We have 911 tapes because they were released publicly. A lot of this stuff is released publicly. Photographs of what was taken, photographs of the bombs, photographs at the scene, photographs of the individual, their Facebook pages. Nowadays, we rip to take the Facebook pages down. We rip to take down their social media. And we do that in law enforcement. That's one of the first things we want done. We want those pictures and those sites taken down so that people can't capture those images and then idolize those shooters. And having said that, we're now going to talk about the killer's history, but there is still, from a prevention standpoint, real value in in talking about that. But it's not that we're actually talking about the killers when we do this. It's actually talking about you and me and the listeners and what we can do to prevent these things happening again, right? Yeah. And I think that's the point, right? We have to understand and appreciate 
when we fail an individual. That failure might be because that individual has mental health needs that aren't met. And it might be because that person has other challenges that they're going through in life and they're not reaching out and we're not reaching out to them. So that's part of what we're looking for. So it is helpful to to understand the shooters. Unfortunately, a ton has been written about them. I just saw a news story a week ago, and I think it was from Australia, maybe New Zealand. I'm just saying. Say it's the Australians, not the Kiwis, please. Saying you Kiwi. And it was a news story that talked all about how these were kids who were part of the trench coat mafia and they were bullied and all of that is wrong. All of that is wrong. And so there's no evidence to support any of that. But that story persists because there is so much on the internet. It's just soaked uh, with this bad information. So what can you tell me that is the actual truth about these two killers so that I can see if I would pick any of those pinch points up along the way where I might have seen something or said something. We always want to talk about what did we know about this individual or these individuals, in this case, two shooters, and can can we successfully off-ramp and prevent somebody from a trigger going off literally and figuratively. So we have two kids who are from pretty uh, predictable middle-class neighborhoods. Their upbringing, their parents, pretty good schools. They had a little bullying. People who were interviewed said these individuals had some typical teenager stuff. And I don't use that to make light of it. I'm saying that's part of what people say is, oh, that's just what happens. A lot of interviews will say they were teased, there was a little gay baiting, but that's just what happens in schools. And it happened to a lot of kids. And I think that's part of what's important to appreciate is that a lot of things happen to other kids. But if you're predisposed in this case, you're headed down a pathway to violence that thing that happens to all the other kids might be your trigger. That's the challenge, right? And the idea that it was more of a tough environment in the school at the time, we have seen changes since Columbine that are cultural changes where we talk about specifically anti-bullying efforts in the United States. And there's a very much this culture of what might've been before acceptable behavior is unacceptable now. And that, and that's good. So hopefully the, you know, teens flexing their stupidity has has become an unpopular thing. So let me just tell you, though, about a year before the shooting, we do know that these two were arrested for breaking into a van to steal things. So clearly, they were not just playing video games and going to movies kind of kids. They were both depressed. One is a hot-headed, hurting inside, and the other one is calm, polite, plotting kid. And his private journal really later shows that he was very focused on who he hated and what he hated. So two different types of individuals, same result. So after the van incident, they're both uh, disciplined criminally. They're given what we call diversion programs, meaning if they behave themselves. And in one case, one of the shooters, the one who was angry, had to take an anger management class. And they supposedly passed these classes and they went back to school. But also clearly, that was their tipping point. And they began to write diaries that were seized after the fact. And we learned that they began to develop a year prior an elaborate plan to do massive damage to the school and kill as many people as they could. And all of this material is eventually released to the public. It's all available on the internet. And it becomes the toolkit for people who want to be like the Columbine killers. Terrifying. In one of the diaries, one of the kids talked about how he wanted to kill himself. He really liked this girl. He said she won't go out with him. He just wants to kill himself. And then the next page, he's, I really love this girl. So Typical teenage kind of angst. But the Mm -hmm. other one did talk a lot about killing, and he is the one who shot the most rounds out of his weapons. And I know you love Wikipedia, 
Don't Wikipedia shame me. <laughs> so I love Wiki shamer. <laughs> so I'm just going to read you this little part in Wikipedia that I pulled out. I've set it aside so I could read it to you. So let me see. I'm not going to use the shooter's name, so I'm just going to call them dudes. So as we would say in the here in the Midwest, dudes. <laughs> so here's let this sink in. One dude also attempted to make napalm and envisioned a kind of backpack with a flamethrower. They both attempted to get another friend and a co-worker who was part of the trench coat mafia to keep the napalm in his house, but he refused. Another dude tried to recruit him to be a third member of their shooting group, but the guy played it off as if it was a joke. What does that tell you? God, there's so many red flags in there. Leakage. Yes. So he's told his co-worker as well this. That's leakage, point one. Napalm. Let's talk about napalm because that's, I don't know how to make napalm, but I'm guessing that you've got to purchase very specific chemicals and maybe the businesses selling it might've been alerted then. How do you make napalm? So I don't have the recipe in my (laughs) wallet. This isn't a cooking show, so that's good. But you're right about bomb making materials. And we had a terrible bombing here, the Oklahoma City bombing Mm. um, at the Miro Federal Building many years ago, not too far off of this time period. And because of the products that were needed for that bombing, the FBI, the federal government put tripwires into place. And, and this has been done all over the world, where right. when certain quantities when quantities and certain items are sold, it's enough to make you go, hey, do you really need that? Are you really a farmer and you need all that fertilizer? Mm. Do you really need that many gallons of? So you're right. These guys had purchased all kinds of stuff to make all these pipe bombs. You remember earlier in the show, I told you that this week I'd heard about two different yeah. Situations where people are going to recreate Columbine. One of those situations, there were, I think, four people involved. Two uh, girls have been charged as adults. And one of their friends had been told about this, but thought they weren't serious until she read in a text message. But she thought they weren't serious until she actually saw the pipe bombs that had been made and stored underneath somebody's porch. But that's often the way, isn't it? You've got to see it with your own eyes before you would actually take action, which is what we're trying to overcome here. Very much so. I think Mm. people so often say, he would never do that. He's never done anything like that. He's a nice kid. You have to separate the, he's a nice kid. He's a good father. He's a good worker from, he is really troubled and challenged and he might do this. And he said he'd do this. That is the leakage that you talked about before. I love that you use that term because especially for kids, I got to tell you, 80 to 90% of them leak information about what they're going to do. And we hear it right here. We hear it right here that they leak the information. And yet, everybody pushed it off, played it off as a joke. And I'm going to tell you, this is exactly what happens. Do you ever uh, ask somebody out on a date or you want your girlfriend to do something with you or whatever? And then to save face when they say no, you just say, oh, I was just kidding. Yeah, I was just Mm -hmm. kidding. That's Mm -hmm. exactly what shooters do in these situations. We've had many instances where somebody hears something, and most of the time in the FBI's behavioral experts research that shows 80 to 90% of somebody leaks to to a peer or family member. In most of those cases, what happens is the person who hears the information goes back to the potential shooter instead of to somebody else. Don't go back to them and say, were you serious or are you kidding? Because everybody's going to say, oh, I was just kidding. And again, it's above your pay grade to know passing information, not exactly, back, but for Exactly. And I'm going to say, say you didn't even know about the napalm, but you did know about the depression perhaps. And then right. 
the criminal behaviour, we've seen that they've been arrested earlier, coupled with the sort of anger issues throwing in. Are we starting to see a worrying suite of red flag behaviours put together there? Yeah, and I think that's where it goes to uh, a term that maybe we haven't used before, but threat assessment teams. After this time period, schools uh, begin to set up, businesses begin to set up, and we're still working on it, but we begin to set up threat assessment teams where you have a team of people at the school, maybe a principal, maybe a counselor, a school coach, law enforcement, school resource officer, and those different people who come together and their job is to every once in a while kind of assess, hey, what do we know about Jimmy? What do we know about Jane? And is there a concern about those individuals? Because we got this piece of information from a parent who said, fill in the blank. What happens previously is that a piece of information might come in to a school or a law enforcement officer or your human resources department. And then that person knows that piece of information and balances just that piece of information. So threat assessments are really like a puzzle. Like you have a puzzle table and you are putting the pieces of the puzzle on the table. And a threat assessment team is going to take your tip about somebody who's talking about napalm and his tip about somebody who is writing a story in his class about killing classmates and another person's neighbor's tip about how that guy's been killing cats in the neighborhood for fun. And all of that it comes together in a puzzle and they get to see who that person is that they're concerned about. And then they develop a strategy to manage that threat. That's what threat assessment is. And that's where you see these little pieces together. If we get that information to a threat assessment team, which schools have many states mandate now, you will see threat management of that threat assessment. But like you say, it's not everywhere because you just said it's in some states now mandated, but parents like myself, should we be making sure that's something that the schools set up where our children are? Yeah, I think so. I think it's important not only at school, but at work, because half of these types of right. shootings mm. occur in places of business. But at your school, you're worried about whether or not your information is going to go someplace. When you call a school, you say, I don't know who to talk to. I don't know what to do. A lot of times people say, well, I didn't want to call the police. It didn't seem so serious. Really, the police are the last ones to get the call on this. They're The police are the last ones who are going to know how bad circumstances are. It's really the people who have the all the picture, and it's going to be the school threat assessment team that has that. And if you knew that there was a place that you could push your information to, that something would be done, think about the FBI's international tip line. You go on to FBI.gov, that information is going to go someplace. It's yeah, not- and I think that's probably the biggest resistance that I often hear from people. Where do I tell that information to? And nothing's going to happen with it. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. Coming up on 5-Minute News. I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. 
I want to go back to the relationship between them. Is there any kind of tells or giveaways in their relationship? Was one led by the other or something that you might have been able to see if you were at school with them, for, for example, or as a friend or even as parents to look at your children's friends and think that relationship's not healthy because of this? My kids are grown up and one of my younger daughters is a school teacher. And I think it is important to look as an adult at the people who your kids hang out with. Sometimes people are followed astray. I don't know in this case, these were both murderers and they willingly did it, but there's no question that one of them was more aggressive in the type of uh, violence he wanted to commit. And his diaries indicate that's the reason that we know that he talked about hate. The other one talked more about killing himself. So Mm -hmm. maybe he chose to go along with that because of that opportunity. As a 20-year law enforcement officer with the FBI, I can't stress how important it is to kind of know what your kids are doing. I know everybody wants to give their kids privacy and everybody wants to not invade their space and all oh, that's his phone and I know he needs that, but it's not that you don't trust you, your kid. It's that they don't understand the gravity. Peer pressure is a terrible thing. And in this case, I think there was probably some peer pressure that was involved. But then look at the person who was offered to be one of the three and chose not to, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've got my mother's words ringing in my ear as you're talking to me. And she always used to say to me, it's not you I don't trust, Sarah. It's the people you're with. And (laughs) that's true. (laughs) No, that's right, right? Yeah, it's It's not. Exactly. It's hard for kids to understand. Why don't you trust me? And now I know as a parent, what she's saying is it's not that I don't trust those people, but I just haven't got eyes on them. So if you had to choose one behavior of concern in this case, Catherine, what sticks out to you most in their background? I think the concept of a zero tolerance policy that we talked about before, it's something that is worth continuing to look at. What does your school have? That harsh discipline. Because in this case, their diaries show that once that discipline took place, it became a rally cry for them, the impetus for them to feel that they were getting a point of no return. And we can always bring kids back. We, we've seen that time and time again, but you can't bring them back unless you give them the proper care they need and compassion that you need in order to raise a, a productive member of society. Catherine, I want to round out our episodes as we always do with our two questions. The first is, what are those hard lessons that we learned from Columbine? I think we're still learning it today. That's the really sad part is Columbine was uh, over 20 years ago, and we're still learning today that the public and the media, when they intensely focus on any type of violent killer and, and glorify them, we created these mythical creatures, and we have to shy away from these stories that make heroes of these people. We need to turn and look at our survivors, our victims, our neighborhoods that recovered, and just not make a story. The myth of them is really so far from the reality. Don't show the pictures, don't repeat the stories, don't talk about them. Don't be part of creating a myth that makes anybody think that these killers were anything but killers. I want to ask you about those incredible moments of resilience and courage and humanity that we did see at Columbine. We did see them. And and I think there's plenty of brave teachers and students, including those who worked for three hours to stop the bleeding and try to save Dave Sanders. But I guess I want to point out one thing, and not to make light of all the first responders who were there, changed their lives forever, and not a lot of them. They're fantastic people. But I think if I was going to point out one thing, I would point out 
the resilience of Columbine. It has stood for another two decades and really has stood, I think, very much on the foundation of their principal, Frank DeAngelis. Frank faced a shooter in the hallway who fired at him from down the hall. And he was up near the front of the school. And was he concerned about his own safety? No, he heard glass shattering in the display cases behind him. And what was his first thought? His first thought was he heard a group of girls coming from a hallway just to his left. And he he went immediately to those girls. He ushered them into a storage room that he had to find the key for. Imagine finding the right key on your keychain. He locked those girls in, in that little room and he said, I'm coming back for you. Oh and my God. That's terrifying. Moments later, after he'd been shot at, he came back to that hallway. He unlocked that door and he took those girls outside. Wow. He's so brave. That's incredible. That's absolutely frank. The last time I was in Denver, I was talking to him and he started at Columbine as a 24-year-old social studies teacher and baseball coach. He took over at principal just three years before the shooting occurred. When he retired in 2014, all those years later, he had 18 years at Columbine High School and the shooting has defined him whether he wanted it to or not. He writes letters. He calls the families of those 13 on, that were killed in the shooting on their anniversaries and birthdays. He never abandoned his school to lick his own wounds like many of us might have done. Even when other shootings occur in other area schools, when dozens of credible threats come in and continue to come in that haunt Columbine High School uh, community, he's there. And even today, misguided, troubled kids come there to commit suicide. He's the one who places the call to other countless principals of other schools where shootings occur to say, if nothing else, take my name and number. You call me back when you want to talk. He's always been there. Amazing. And I've listened to a podcast called Confronting Columbine. And the way that the students actually speak about Frank is so moving. And he's clearly like a touchstone for so many of them, even now, all these years later. And that's a really, really heavy burden, isn't it, to bear? I think so. He is a very soft-spoken person, and the overwhelming burden of Columbine ended his marriage, but his Catholic faith and a new love has sustained him, and the Columbine community has sustained him. They are as much his family as any. He speaks freely about the stress that he has undergone, the emotional strain that this has been, but I'm really happy to report that he reconnected with his childhood sweetheart a few years ago. He says, well, school needed him. But I think he needed the school after the shooting, and I think the school got the better end of the deal. Catherine, what would your final message be for us today? I think it's important that we recognize how far we've come since Columbine with police protocols, how we train kids, how we train adults. We've made a lot of progress, but I think most importantly, this may sound a little hokey, but I absolutely think this is true, is kindness. Kindness is the loop that hooks all of these things together. When your policies are written so that they're not so zero tolerance, when people respond positively, these two kids had social structures around them that in some ways let them down. And I'm not saying that they weren't to blame, but there were missed opportunities when we look back and, and maybe we'd had the opportunity to intersect and kindness had won out. We wouldn't be talking about Columbine today. 
Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect be ready for it if you've enjoyed stop the killing check out more podcasts from community podcast productions like this one something is Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event, returns to London on the 21st and 22nd of September 2024. CrimeCon UK is the world's leading true crime event and is partnered by True Crime, the expert-led channel available on your platform of choice. From fascinating sessions with some of the biggest names in true crime to raising a glass with your favourite podcasters, CrimeCon UK is an unforgettable way for you to really immerse yourself into the true crime community. I will be there with my co-host Catherine Schweit from Stop the Killing. So come and join us and don't forget to quote Ferris for your special 10% discount. Head to crimecon.co.uk to book your tickets today. And that discount code again, Ferris as in my last name. 
Ferris, like the wheel, Ferris, like Beulah, whatever way you choose to remember it, don't forget to put it in and you'll get 10% off. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.